Hey, good people, this is your N.I. Dom, back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, I have two thoughts on the brain, um, at least two thoughts that I want to process out loud with you. And one is related to some content that I took in this week, and because it had me thinking... I took it in twice, and chances are I'm going to listen to it a couple of more times. It's a short piece of content, and it's from um, my favorite husband and wife team um, in the typology community. I refer to them as the husband and wife team, and this looks like it was some content that was released about a month ago, but I'm just now consuming it, and... um, Something to the effect of surviving as an INTJ woman, and they may not have used the word surviving, but doing career and love and just kind of living as an INTJ woman. Someone had written in asking about, um, how, like, how do INTJ women survive or I'm going to say thrive. I don't think that they used those words, but that was the essence of it. Like, how do we thrive being one of the rarest types? Um, and so there was just, there were about four things that they said in this very short YouTube video that had, um, four things that have been on my mind and, you know, I've been picking it apart a little bit. Um, like when I say picking it apart, lifting it up, turning it around, seeing what's underneath it, flipping it over just because there's just, just a lot for me to, um, explore with the con, that piece of content. So that's on the brain. I want to process that out, out loud with you. I'm going to say thriving. I'm going to say thriving as an INTJ woman, but it would have been that, um, it would have been nice for me to give the title. I'm probably going to find the title and put it in the in the show notes so that by the time you're listening to it, you know exactly what I'm talking about, even though I don't know what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> so the second thing that is influencing this reflection today is this idea of independence. So I've been thinking a lot about um, being independent. I don't know what started me on this pathway. Um, I sure, It feels like I took in some content that talked about independence, um, but I can't recall. I will say that as of, um, and I'm recording this on a Saturday afternoon, but um, somewhere around Thursday, I think Thursday morning, a question popped in my mind. What type out of the 16 types in the Myers-Briggs system, which type is the most independent And so I then went and found some articles that kind of talked about which personality types, which MBTI types are most independent. Um, And I did some reading there. So I have some thoughts about those articles. But honestly, this idea of being independent is something that feels like it's coming out of this space that I'm in in terms of being really honest about how I'm, how I'm strategizing in my life. Like I'm, I've deployed a strategy and I think that that strategy has taken me so far and I now need to calibrate that strategy to go to the next level. And 
part of, there's something stirring inside of me that's saying you need to accept that you're independent and that needs to somehow be a part of your calibration. As you calibrate that strategy, you need to account for the fact that you're highly independent. So I have some thoughts around independence and then again, thriving as an INTJ woman. Um, I'm certain that there could be some integration of those two streams of thought, but I won't know until I get on the other side or at to the end of the reflection. So we're going to go ahead and get started right after, this, after the disclaimers. Thriving as an INTJ woman and independence, okay? If you are new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theory. The two theories I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as an African-American woman. Being from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma, I am a trained and practicing educator and social scientist, and half of that time has been in leadership. Politically, I identify, or politically, I um, lean into tenets of uh, critical race feminism, which basically means that I have a sensitivity, an intellectual sensitivity to power um, relating to race, class, gender, sexuality, um, and other and other constructs in our social world. This project is unedited and it is unscripted. If you want to know more about it or me, please visit please feel free to visit my website at youridom.wordpress.com. I'm fumbling a little bit because there was a thought that just popped in my head um, when I started talking about that intellectual sensitivity um, and uh, thought about a conversation I had last night with a friend that I am growing quite weary of, quite weary of. And so... Um, yeah. Anyway, I have a lot on my brain this morning, well beyond what I the two things I want to talk about. But we have um, we have room for me to come back and do another reflection this um, this weekend. Um, normally, I close out my season at the end of June, and then I'm going to go quiet or dark for July. But I have a lot of reflections still to do. Because I've been really wrestling in this work situation, I haven't had the luxury to um, muse in my mind uh, the way I'd like to in terms of this project. So most of you know that most of these this, these reflections that I've been sharing have been work-related. Um, that's clearly where I've been um, at, and I, I, I think I've been doing some really important work reflecting out loud with you all, but it has prevented me from entertaining other streams of thought. And so as a result, I don't have my numbers the way I um, need to. So I'm either going to be kicking out a lot of reflections for June or we're going to go into July and then I'll go quiet or dark for August and not July. So we'll see when we'll talk about that. One one quick housekeeping note before I kind of really jump into this reflection. Um, someone contacted me on, I got two contacts this week. Woo woo. Um, so I got, I think I told you guys I was contacted on 
my website, which turns into an email message. Um, and yeah, that's all I can say to that. And then I was contacted, I was contacted on Twitter. I received a private message on Twitter. And that must mean that I'm following somebody that's following me. Um, because that's the only way you can send a private message on Twitter. So this is a private message. And I don't have that many followers on this Twitter account. I have a, a couple of Twitter, Twitter accounts, but this one I, I'm at 17 <laughs> as opposed to 3,000 of my other, uh, account. And so someone from my Twitter community for this project sent me a message and I'm, I think, I think those are the same people. The person who contacted me via email and via Twitter, I think it's the same person. And so, um, we'll see. And, um, I'm kind of in, in, in intrigued by the, the message that they share with me, but because it wasn't public, I don't want to process that out loud. But if you are listening, uh, let me know if it was you. In fact, one person contacted me on multiple, um, channels. All right, you guys, let's start talking. I want to start off talking about this idea of thriving as an INTJ woman. And I'm super intrigued by this idea um, because, I mean, this is honestly where I think I'm at. And I think this whole struggle with work, and I don't think I, I don't, I keep saying I think I think, right? I don't think I talk about the context of the struggle a lot with you all. And maybe I don't talk about it with myself. I think the struggle with work is really because there's a larger struggle or a larger consideration about what kind of life I want, what kind of quality of life I want. And because um, I live in a culture that's driven by capitalism, um, and and I don't think I've said this ever before in this project, so I'm about to say something for the very first time, is that primarily, but not not completely, but primarily African Americans move about through capitalism by way of labor. So the only capital that we have is labor, our bodies. And so we generate capital by labor through our bodies. We don't have multiple streams of moving about through capitalism. We're highly dependent on our bodies for labor. Okay. So in that reality, whether you agree with it or not, let's just say it is one form of reality. And there are so many ways we can be critical of this, this idea that African Americans, our primary way of moving about through capitalism is by way of our bodies as a point of labor. Like, I want to interrogate that as a critical uh, race feminist. I'd love to unpack that and interrogate that as a person that is trying to get back into spirituality or trying to strengthen my relationship with spirituality. I want to interrogate that idea. So if you're hearing me say that and you don't agree with it, okay, I'm fine with that, right? You know, send me a message. Let's let's interrogate that. However, statistically, <laughs> statistically, um, we are in a capitalistic structure and 
the means of capital um, because of the origin of capitalism and the origin, the start of our country and the, uh, my, uh, I hate to say migration. That is just a gross, gross distortion of reality. Excuse me to say the way Africans, Americans migrate or Africans, or let's say black people migrated into this country because we didn't migrate. You guys know that into this country, all of that, the intersections of all of that, the arrival of black people into this country, the formation, the start of capitalism and the formation of this country at the intersections have created a very specific experience for um, what would be considered the African-American experience. Okay, this is interesting. I, I kind of want to linger here, but let me stop. So in that, um, if you want to interrogate that, we're going to have to go and look at all of that. Like, let's not just talk about how many ways that we can move about in capitalism without looking at the legacy of those three, I want to say institutions, but those three, yeah, I could say institutions because capitalism is part of the economic institution. The formation of our country is part of the political institution. And then even if we're going to call it the institution of culture, um, but of the African American experience, like we look at the, 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 those three institutions at the intersection, at the genesis, um, and then we'll have a conversation about being critical of this idea of African Americans having only real, one, only one real, um, pathway in capitalism, which is labor by way of the body. Okay. Oh my God. I have stayed there a little longer than I had anticipated, but that I'm sure that means something. Um, so in terms of me, trying to think about thriving, I can't think about thriving without having a clear, um, safe and authentic, fulfilling way of, of how I'm going to relate to capitalism, right? Because I can't bypass it. I can't bypass it. So I have to have a relationship with capitalism. How am I going to do that? And right now I have part of my strategy um, the past three years is to come back into employment so that I can go back out into being, into being, um, I don't like the word self-employed because I'm, I never really see myself as self-employed um, because what I want to do is give birth to an organization and then be employed by the organization by in which I gave birth to. Um, anyway, we'll say self-employed for now, but that's really, there's a difference between self-employed versus being employed by the organization in which you found it. I think those are different. Um, so all of that is important. Um, but it's only a slice of the larger consideration. 
the larger consideration is quality of life. And so um, one of the, the, so in addition to uh, having a relationship to capitalism, the other thing that impacts quality of life um, is how I interact with people. Um, because we are social beings, even those of us who are introverted and independent, we're still social beings and we are very much in a social world. Um, how we have a relationship with the social world is very different and it's based on a number of different conditions, um, number of factors, but we, we are all having a relationship with the social world. And, um, I think that becomes the challenge for the INTJ woman more so than quote unquote work. The challenge, um, in terms of capitalism, rather, I believe the challenge with capitalism uh, is more impacted by race than it would be by personality or even gender. And that came up in that YouTube content um, from the husband and wife team. Like they were very comfortable in talking about gender um, as, as, as an intersection of the INTJ personality. But and this is one of the ways I critique them often is that they don't consider other factors. Um, I have heard them talk about socioeconomic conditions um, once, and I don't consume all of their content, but there was a couple of years where I was, I was, any, I was consuming it. Um, they were, uh, they were generous and I was generous, generous, what's the word? Generously consuming it. I don't do that. I haven't really been consuming a lot of their content the past two years, but, um, so I, I don't want to always say I don't want to misrepresent, um, another content generator, but in the pieces that I have taken in, they haven't been related to, they don't really talk about the other intersections of being in the social world. And so, um, yeah, so that's that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stay there, but I, I just really want to draw the distinction that that content was really good at looking at, okay, how does an INTJ man survive and how does an INTJ woman survive in the, in the social world? And I'm saying, let's also look at race. Um, we can look at language. Um, we can look at citizenship status. We can look at um, education levels, you know, and, and I, they did talk about culture in that. Um, they mentioned culture, but they didn't really unpack that. They didn't unpack the ways that culture would impact a person's, um, you know, how they would use their personality, how they're in, you know, how they would show up in the world as driven by their personality, but they did mention culture. And so I want to definitely give credit to, for that. Um, But I say all of that to say that um, 
to their point, they made a point that I really, really appreciated. Um, and if I, and I'd listened to it twice, so, and I want to go back and listen to it again. I didn't take notes. So it was a very short piece. But what, one of the things that stood out to me in that, in that piece of content, it was on YouTube. That's how I got it on YouTube. One thing that stood out to me in that content was they said INTJs, they, they, they looked at the INTJ woman from two angles, from being an NT and being a woman. And I believe if I, if I remember correctly, they were saying both of those are a challenge. Being in a, a woman, they didn't say it this explicitly, but I'm going to say it explicitly. Being a woman in a country in, in the United States where women didn't have. Sorry about that. It's going to do it. Hold on. I have no idea why I have an alarm set for Saturday at noon, but nonetheless, I didn't, I didn't remember that that was set. So I apologize for that noise. Um, unedited, unscripted. So, um, women in the United States didn't have full rights to own property, um, to vote. Um, and so I think they mentioned this in the, in the content that being a one, a female INTJ is not as difficult as it would have been in the past. It's getting better. And I agree. And I definitely appreciate the historical context to that. Um, but there is, there are still challenges. There is definitely, um, pay gaps. Uh, there's a pay gap between, you know, what men get paid and what women get paid in terms of different, um, there are different access points into different in particular industries um, based on if you're a man or a woman. So there is still disparity between the genders in terms of the world of work. And most times, unfortunately, when people think of INTJ, they go into the space of work because that's really our sweet spot when you look at the NT working together. NT meaning intuition and thinking um, being side by side. And that's the other point of distinction. What does it mean to be NT? What does it mean to be an intuitive thinker? Um, they didn't say this, but I'm going to say it. I believe we live in a culture that's anti-intellectual, right? And this isn't to say all thinkers are intellectuals, but man, do people have a hard time with rational thinking? Um, I'm going to say most people I find are emotional thinkers, right? And the reason why I'm saying that is because sometimes those of us in the type community, those of us who follow Myers-Briggs, we forget that all of those cognitive functions are are points of cognition. They're all thinking functions. We forget that. And so then when we say thinking, we think that is the, the, that only thinkers think. That is absolutely not true, okay? But it's a, it's a type of thinking. And so rational thinking, um, analytical thinking is probably a better way of saying it, um, versus emotional thinking, is pronounced. I'm thinking about it in my industry where I work. There are a lot of emotional thinkers and man, my goodness, my goodness, is that taxing. It's taxing and it can be downright 
scary at times. But anywho, um, I have something on the brain that that's really fighting my for my attention. I just don't want to talk about it because it's going to take me back to work, and I just need a break. I just don't. I have really no desire to talk about work. But it's still on the brain all the same. Um, I have one more week and then I'll be on vacation. So then I'll be released from that uh, type of intrusion. But um, so the thinking part of us, I think um, the analytical part of us um, can be a challenge to in a world that um, may not want to think in analytical ways. And I think the other part of that's a challenge for us is our intuition. And that's clearly a place where we don't represent the majority. So you just take these two functions that aren't as um, available or as received and you push them together and it can make for complications. Now, I'm going to say something that I think that they 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 touched on. And I want to take it and kind of go in a different direction if I can. Um, they said that men, men, NT men, intuitive thinking men, are more received in their NT-ness because there are certain expectations that society has for men that would make room for when an, an NT man to be in his NT-ness to receive him. Like, oh, because we expect men to be analytical um, and we allow for men to be innovators. They don't say it that way. But when we think about in our history books, when we study uh innovators, pioneers, entrepreneurs, right? Most of them are men. I think as I've been more cognizant or as I've been um, noticing in the last year or two, I look at content through a critical lens as a critical race feminist. I look at all content, all images, all media, all forms of media through a critical lens. And I am seeing Generators, content generators doing a better job at diversifying the representations of, of whatever it is that they're talking about. So I want to just give credit to that. But historically, um, or yeah, historically and for the most part, we have to sprinkle in women as innovators, entrepreneurs, pioneers. But, but our society just has made, made room for men to do that, for men to occupy that role. So when an NT man is acting out of his NT-ness, he doesn't have as much friction as an NT woman. Because there are greater expectations, there are great, there's there's a greater um, window or lane for him to occupy that space. All right, and I thought they mentioned, I thought that they made that case well, even if they didn't say it the way I'm saying it. I felt really satisfied 
when I listen to the husband and wife team talk about how an NT woman is going to struggle a little more than an NT man just because of how society um, embrace men, um, allow men to be analytical thinkers and innovative thinkers. What I would have loved for them to talk about, and they would not have been able to do this, but I would have loved for the consideration of what does it mean to be a black female INTJ or an INTJ black woman. Because when we take into consideration social expectations, we have to then look at the expectations around race. And when we look at expectations around race, we can get into stereotypes, right? Now, I remember at some point I listened to some content from this uh, husband and wife team a couple of years ago that I listened to it. I don't know when it was generated, but just talked about stereotypes come from some type of sensory experience. That there was some type of sensory, some kind of experience that was perceived and then it was turned into a stereotype. And I believe that this was comment was made around women. Some stereotypes around women, I believe. So I think, I don't, I don't want to get in trouble because I know that they have a strong fan base. And so, <laughs> hey, if I'm misrepresenting them, somebody can let me know. I'm, I'm really okay with that. But let me just, let me try here because there's a point I want to make. I think I remember them talking about how most women are socialized to be F.E., extroverted feeling. So when most women are socialized and conditioned to use that function, extroverted feeling, we can unfortunately draw conclusions that women are feelers. I so love that point. So I... I'm going to bring, I want to bring in race. And this is an, this is a, this is exactly the problem that I'm having with a friend of mine that I had a conversation with yesterday. And I'm, I'm really, like I said before, I'm really growing weary of that friendship. I am growing weary of it. Um, This friend of mine is a black woman, and she's an educator, <laughs> um, and she's an administrator. Uh, has a almost has strong contempt for black people. Yes, you heard me. She's a black woman with a high degree of contempt for black people, and it's growing. And it's getting louder and louder. And so I said to her last night, I said, I need you to understand that as a person that does a lot of um, activism for racial justice work, it is very difficult to be around you. Um, and you're talking in such a degrading way about other black people. Oh my gosh, there's so much located in that. It's insane. All right. Now, honestly, I, I think she's wounded. And I think her woundedness happened at the hands of black people. This is the whole point that I wanna, I'm want i trying to make because I don't want to stay here. 
crossing my fingers, I don't stay here. But if her woundedness happened at the hands of black people, not if she's drawing a conclusion that all black people harm are harmful, which is kind of ridiculous because she's a black woman, right? She's black. But okay, let's let's say that. So when we have an experience that is co- that's correlated with another marker, if we're not careful, we start drawing these conclusions that all people who look like this will be associated with that experience that I had. It's just not true. It's just not true. So all women, you might experience all women who are FE, extraordinary feelers, but that's all the women that you've experienced because all women are not extroverted feelers. Some of us are extroverted thinkers and some of us are introverted thinkers, right? So this idea that stereotypes are born from some type of real experience, I'm going to agree with at 65%. I say that's 65% true. The caveat is, okay, let me say 70%. Okay, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> 70, I'm in agreement with this idea that all stereotypes are born from some type of truth, excuse me, some type of experience, some type of, I don't know if they said sensory experience, but some type of experience. Some type of real experience. I'm in agreement with that at 70%. Here's the caveat. It's the experience of the person. Now, if that experience is shared by a group of people, particularly when that group is the dominant group, and when you're the dominant group, you get to narratize. I love that word, you guys. I've been saying that word lately, narratize, to give a narrative of a thing. When you're the dominant group, you can name the world, you can narratize the world, you can put that in your interpretation of of experiences in print, in writing, you can legislate experiences, you can hold people accountable. You know, you just think about the whole anti-critical race theory in schools. Who's driving that? Who's driving the anti-critical race theory conversation? It's the dominant group. Now, do you have some black people who are on the, on the, on the same page with the dominant group? Absolutely. Do you have some people in the dominant group who are about promoting critical theory, critical race theory? Absolutely. But the main drivers of the anti-critical race theory conversation are people who make up the racial elite or the dominant group. So then an experience that's shared by a group of people, and if that group of people happens to be a part of the dominant group, then that shared experience becomes the reality for everybody. So when you have a group of people who are experiencing women as feelers, then that group of people can then say women are feelers and that's it. And they're, they're not taking in the experiences of other people who saying, you know what? I've experienced women who are thinkers, not feelers, right? I've experienced black people who are not harming in this way. And I say that going back to my friend, right? Because I don't think this, I do think that there's a group of people. I do think there's a narrative about black people being harmful, but I would love to come and talk about that too, because 
that isn't even statistically supported. Although people try to make this argument that I'm not being racist. Just look at the numbers. Ooh, there's so much to unpack in that one. We're not going to touch that today. Not today, but (laughs) statistically, it's not that African-Americans are more harmful. That causes the fear. There are other things that can cause the fear of black people beyond quote unquote, any kind of rational argument. I believe, in short, there is an irrational, there's an irrational belief system about African-Americans. I'm going to go to my friend, right? So I said to my friend last night, I said, I said, um, you know, a lot of what uh, you are identifying as a black issue is really a black issue in a space where the African-American community has been starved of resources. This is the one thing, this is the one thing I find problematic about this particular friendship. In it, not only is she anti-black, as a black woman, she's anti-black. Oh my gosh. Mm-mm-mm. Not only is she anti-black, she also has a superior orientation. So she she's very irrational. This is this is the point. She's very irrational, but wanting to have power in her irrational. Uh, processing. So rational thinkers, I don't know, I do not know a thinker person that when they hear an argument that's against their argument, they don't go, huh, say more about that. I don't find, I find thinkers to be intellectually open and curious. Most of us, unless you're immature, you got some kind of intersection happening um, with trauma or um, and maybe you're, maybe it depends on the Enneagram. I'm not sure. But, man, she gets very angry when I offer research, stats, theory to support this case. And I said, I'm trying to, I had to break down what the socialization process is. And so her argument is that there, there, one of the things that she said last night was that black people should know better. And I can't remember. I'm going to say something stupid, y'all, just to make this point. Apples, apple pie, apple pies are made from apples. Black people should know that. And if you don't know that apple pies are made from apple, that means inherently I don't know what it means for her. I don't know what it means in her brain if black people don't know the things that she feels that black people should know. And so I had to then come to her and say, how do we know anything? How do we know and learn anything? We learn by way of the socialization process. Even if we go and learn, those of us who are autodidactic, I think if I'm saying that correctly, those of us who are autodidacts, I think, if I am saying that right, who are self-learned, you still learn independently within a social context. Do you go read a book? Who wrote the book? <laughs> right? You go listen to a podcast? Who's generating the podcast? Even if you're doing it by yourself, you're learning within a social context because we are social beings, right? So anything that we learn comes from our environment. 
our surrounding. And not only does it come from our surroundings, it comes by way of having access to that surrounding, to that environment. Um, so when you are in an environment that has been deprived or starved of resources, that means any learning that's coming out of that environment is going to be different from an individual who's socialized in what's called a, a resource-laden environment, right? If I'm socialized from a resource-deprived environment, my learning is different from someone who's socialized in a resource-laden environment, Okay. And I tried to say that in a number of different ways. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All she could say was, well, I just don't agree. <laughs> okay. Well, what part of that? What part of that don't you agree with? <laughs> or do you disagree with the socialization process? Do you disagree that black people are coming from resource-deprived spaces? What, what, what exactly do you disagree with? And she's like, I don't know. I just disagree. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> you gotta laugh. And I think this is the perfect, I don't even know. I know I'm in a rabbit hole, y'all. I know, but can y'all just let me just linger here just for a little bit longer. This is the perfect case to help us to understand how stereotypes, how they're born. They're born out of laziness, if you ask me, right? People unwilling to act. Be critical thinkers. I don't even think you have to be a critical thinker to understand the socialization process, but that's my bias. That's my training. I went to school for that. So I want to be fair. So let me, let me come out of that before I, I've ticked some of you off. If I've not done that already, let me try to get back to this um, thriving as an INTJ woman. Let me see. I'm going to put you guys on pause so I can regroup. I think where I wanted to go um, with this idea of stereotypes born out of something that's real, as as argued by this husband and wife team, as I remember it, again, if I'm wrong, do let me know, um, is that they're born out of a real experience from a subgroup that then, be if that subgroup is of the dominant is the is connected to the dominant group or have access to resources then they can determine the narrative all right and so there are narratives if we will you don't want to use the word stereotype let's not use stereotype but there are narratives of what it means to be a black woman okay and at the risk of falling into another rabbit hole one of the things i am I feel quite icky about is that I'm in a job where there are no other black women for me to talk to at my level and at any level really. But I might, I can find one, only one other professional black woman and then everybody else is, um, will be, will be considered, um, uh, I can't think of the word for it. If you're not, a, if your position is not at the professional level, it's maybe support staff. I think they may be called support staff. 
And it's just a handful of those. So, so, so I'm, I'm, I don't have anyone to talk to, but I have a lot of people talking at me about what it means to be a black woman or to say, I know that as a black woman, you're going through things I can't understand, right? But never do you pause to ask what my experiences are as a black woman. I have a black man talking to me about being a black woman. I have several white women talking to me about being a black woman. But never, this is what's so fascinating. This makes the point of what it means to be a black woman. Not only do you get to narratize the world, narratize, that's my word, that not only do you get to name the world, you even narrat- name my experiences in the world. Or you, you determine how my experiences are understood. So the best you're going to give me is you're going to say, I know I cannot understand what it's like to be a black woman in the, in this environment. That's the best you can give me. You've never paused to ask me my take on it. You just don't. So I'm sitting here listening to you. And in the past, when I spoke up, they had these two white women had such a violent reaction to me that, yes, I'm going to be honest. I just sit there now. Right. I'm thinking to myself, what is another year going to be like sitting underneath that? Like, what's going to happen to me if I have to have another year of being talked at and not talked with? I don't know, y'all, but that's another episode. So, um, as a, as an African American woman, there are experiences that we have that complicate, that complicates the, the, uh, that complicates our intiness, right? So if women in general aren't really expected to be thinkers, right? And then intuition is not respected. We can, we can hopefully have making a case that being black, being a black female INTJ is just even more challenging. It's even more challenging. Um, and I, I often mention this. And I've written about it a lot under my primary name, under my name rather, not under my um, N.I. Dom alias. But there are four stereotypes um, typically um, that black women typically have to navigate through. And um, and those it would be interesting to see. One day I might play around with writing a piece about how those four stereotypes um, um, uh, relate or connect to being an intuitive thinker. So the four stereotypes are, I've mentioned them before, I'm going to mention them again. Um, being sassy. Um, I, no, you didn't, girl. <laughs> Even trying to act that out is funny for me, like snapping my fingers. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm in a silly mood this morning. So one thing that has been, I've been seeing this argument on social media about how black women, and I've seen black men do this too, um, challenge um, queer white men. Queer white men 
uh, embody the stereotypes of black womanhood. And it's an interesting argument, and I won't even try to explain it today. Um, But it is an argument about queer white men, uh, queer femme white men, white men who are trying to embody feminine. I shouldn't say trying, excuse me, that was wrong. White, queer white men that embody feminism um, or feminine energy um, will act out the stereotypes of sassiness that usually is it's, uh, leveraged as a stereotype against black women. Uh, so, so sassiness is one. Um, being the all, all encompassing mother for everybody, being mammy, right? That all we, like, we are going to sacrifice ourselves to nurture other people, which I think is close to that stereotype for women in general as being a nurturer. Um, I want to come back and consider how the mammy stereotype differs from the all women should be nurturers stereotype expectation. Because I think there's a difference. I don't believe I'm able to uh, uh, tease that out at this moment. So we have sassy, mammy. We have angry, the angry black woman. Um, that's the one I get hit with a lot. Um, and I'm a type eight, so, right? Um, so you can see, and we can see how I, and I did this, uh, episode back in, um, the fall of 2020 when this project first started. I think it was the fall of 2020 where I was talking about why I tested as a one in the Enneagram system a couple of times. And so I went through this phase where I was like, Am I not, am I an eight or a one? I also looked at, am I an eight or a five? And you have to go listen to those. They're not the best in terms of quality, but those two, those two episodes were very transformative for me as I was trying to figure out my Enneagram number. And so when I did the work looking at an eight or a one, what I came to terms with, um, was that I was trying to sanitize the anger in me. I was trying to divorce myself from the anger because of the trauma that I experienced and because of the uh, black angry woman stereotype. And that that sanitation process made me show up more like a one because I'm going to show you I'm good. I'm not angry. I'm good. Look at me. I'm good. I'm not angry because anger is anger is bad. And so I was trying to work around the anger um, quote unquote, and coming out as good. And that was where the one was coming from. At least that's my theory of the case. Um, so anger, um, the angry black woman is a third stereotype. And then the fourth stereotype that a lot of black women are guilty of embodying and promoting and policing, if you will, is the strong black woman, you know? And so one of the things I've been doing in my current position and I feel a little gross in doing it, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stay the course, and I'm gonna have take some time to ruminate on this. But um, I've really become more comfortable as an act of justice work, right? To do activism work and justice work, I am 
this is what I say. I'm sad. I'm hurting. I'm experiencing fatigue. I'm afraid, right? I start naming those emotions that don't usually, um, black women don't normally say because we're not afforded the opportunity to feel sad, to feel afraid, to feel fatigued, to feel hurt. Like we have those feelings, but as a, historically, we've not I've been allowed to lean into those feelings because to lean into those feelings would have been to our demise. We were necessitated. We were required to be strong, right? To be strong. I mean, when you, if you just think about 400 years of having your ch- women giving birth to kids as a reproductive operation and those kids taken from you, right? Who has time? You can't linger in those emotions. You have to be strong to move on, right? Um, to know that you or your mate can be raped, to be murdered at the hands of someone else's decision, someone else's agency. What do you do? You don't have time to sit around and say, I'm hurt. I'm sad. I'm fatigued. You have to be strong. Well, so there's an example of how the stereotype is grounded in some type of experience, right? So one of the things that we have to do in terms of, if you're listening to me as a black woman, one of the things we have to do is we have to interrupt that stereotype. We have to claim our vulnerability. We have to claim it and to be, and, and that is justice work to put in the face of other people and say, nope, no baby. I am sad right now. Yeah. I may not make decisions out of that sadness, but I want to let you know I'm sad. I'm afraid. And so that is the fourth stereotype. And so when you think about our in as an INTJ black woman, that NT-ness is not just complicated as a because I'm a woman. It's also complicated because I'm black. And I think a lot of the experts in the type community are not black. They're not they're not black women. And so we just don't have that layer of understanding in the typology community. And I'm going to get certified this um, fall. That's my goal. <laughs> and um, I really, really want to. Um, and But whenever I do, I, I don't necessarily want to be the expert the way other people are in the typology community because my work isn't just about personality theory. My work is about empowerment. I just use... Um, personality psychology as a means for empowering. Um, it's just one of my pathways for doing empowerment work. Um, so, so I think I'm going to go a little over an hour because there are two other things that came from this content that I really want to say, and then I'll have to do another episode on the independent, uh, the independent part of my thinking for this morning. There were two other points that I, I, I thought about as I listened to the husband and wife team talking about thriving as an INTJ woman. Something to that effect. Um, is that usually what, what it was really, this is another powerful point that I've, I've heard them say a variation of this before, but I appreciate hearing again that when you're an intuitive, you learn most intuitive survive in the world by doing a little blending 
blending, um, acting out, acting as a sensor, right? Learning how sensors think and feel and operate and then mimicking that so that you can blend in because the majority of the people, most people are sensors. When you are an intuitive, you have to learn to survive in that. Well, the argument that they made the husband and wife team is that women, because of what it means to survive as a woman, women are better able to blend than men. Female INTJs or INTJ women, I think that's a better way of saying that. INTJ women are better at blending in the world than INTJ men because of of surviving as a woman requires us to develop that capacity. And so they were saying that's an advantage. But the counter to that, which I thought was another good point, is that if we're going to truly thrive, we're going to have to come out of blending. Come out, if you will. Come out and be unapologetically an intuitive thinker. And so um, there was a point in the audio, it's towards the end, where the wife made this comment. I had to rewind and listen to that part several times because I was missing it. I was like, I'm not understanding what she's saying. But I think what she, what I, what I, what I think is she's saying that when you come out as an NT woman, it's not going to be easy. It is going to be a little more difficult, which is why people blend. But she says, if you come out as an NT woman, there are people looking for you. They can't find you if you're blending. So while coming out might be difficult, you might it might be worth the challenge. My sister made a comment to me earlier this week about me dealing with work. And she said, this is a powerful line that my sister said. She said, the crucifixion is the hardest part. <laughs> the crucifixion is the hardest part. So when we're going through some kind of liberation process where we're coming out, we're trying to be more of who we are. There is a, there's violence that we have to confront. And oftentimes we stay closeted, if you will. We stay blending because we don't want to encounter the violence. You guys, I'm going to probably end right here because this right here is fire. We don't want to encounter the violence. So we stay away, we stay in, we stay blending. But in order to thrive, we have to come out. We're going to have to confront the crucifixion. Thinking about Jesus, the you know, um, Jesus being crucified so that we may have life abundantly. If I'm using that, excuse me, I had to put you guys on pause, but let me try to jump back in here. So in order to get to that place where we are thriving, we've got to come out. We've got to stop blending. We've got to face that difficult moment, or what my sister said, the crucifixion. Face the crucifixion for the liberation. Face the crucifixion for the freedom. That's, wow, that is powerful just to hear myself talk that through. Um. And I wanted to talk a little bit about if NT women are more prepared for blending than NT men, I wanted to make a theory about people 
who are in the margins of society have a better, are more able to blend than people who make up the dominant group. But I, um, I'm just going to say that. I'm not going to unpack that. I think where I want to close is this notion that surviving or excuse me, thriving as an NT woman means means facing the crucifix the crucifixion process. I'm sorry again, I had to put you guys on pause, so I'm sorry about the break. I've been paused for about four or five minutes. Um, I think what I was saying is um, if we want to thrive, though, we have to be willing um, to confront the thing that has forced us to, um, quote unquote, be closeted or forced us to blend in. And I think to the wife's point in that content that there are people who are waiting for us to make ourselves um to make ourselves present, to make ourselves appear, uh, to make ourselves available. And when we blend, we're denying people the, uh, the, um, the ability to find us. Um, I found myself wanting to ask this question. Um, what, what, what do people in the social world want from an NT person, an INTJ? Like, what is it that we bring to other social beings that would make them want to find us? And that's a question that I've been chewing on because, and it's a, it's, it's probably going to lead into another reflection. And I think I'm going to end, I'm going to end this here because that is a, I, I do want to take that question and unpack it, but it, I, I want to let you guys know that that question was born out of me listening to this uh, particular content from the husband and wife team. And when we stop blending, when we stop being in the closet, um, we come out to people who are looking for us, people who need us. And I'm just curious. I know what INTJ ness can do for work and I know what INTJ ness can do for the self I'm not sure what INTJ ness can do for other social beings and I would love to um, interrogate that a little bit and would love other people um, I would love for the to get someone to unpack that with me or even for me but um, I think that I'm going to just close here And, um, and, um, what does it mean to thrive is the overall sentiment that, um, I believe is important to consider beyond work, um, and must take into consideration the relationships that we have in the social world and what those relationships um, how those relationships differ. Um, yeah, yeah, as I, I think I said, if I didn't, yeah, I think that's just the question that as I'm calibrating and I'm spending so much time thinking about work, the larger converse, the larger consideration is what does it mean to thrive? And I really, really do appreciate this content 
from the husband and wife team because I think, like I said, the question is thriving through the con- the context of NT-ness, through the context of INTJ-ness, because I'm not going to thrive the way my mom and my sister thrive, um, both having sensor, uh, a sensory function um, in their in the top of their stack. You know, my sister's is SE, my mom's SI, and those are the people who I've been around, you know, most of the and so I think I've tried to mimic, blend in terms of having a social life based on how those people do social. Um, but I don't think that that is the way I can do social as an INTJ. And I think part of the work that I have to do is now figure out what does an I, how does an INTJ do social? Because I think that we are social beings. There is a social there is a social component to us and we don't have a lot of role models as to what does that mean. Um, and so I don't know. I feel like I don't have a nice, tidy way to bring closure to this, uh, this reflection. There's so much here. Um, but I am, I'm going to, I'm just going to close by, um, raising the question of what does it mean to thrive as an INTJ woman? And that has to extend beyond work. It has to extend beyond work. It also must extend into the social world and having those relationships. Um, and it must factor in being black because that's why, who I am. And heaven forbid we also factor in me being um, um, formally educated at, you know, with, with three degrees um, from a lower socioeconomic background, from intergenerational trauma, right? It must factor in all of that. Um, but I love, love, love what this husband and wife team has done for me as I'm going through the season of calibration. What they've done is put into focus my INTJ-ness and it's, it's, it's forcing me to ask that question. What does social mean for me as an INTJ? Because that is the, I'm not going to say that's the only piece, but that is a critical component that I'm contending with. And I think because I'm contending with trying to do social as an INTJ, I'm, it has impacted how I'm doing capitalism because I'm trying to leave space for me to do social a certain way. And I, I've come to terms with the fact that social is not a primary part of my life, right? My innovation is a primary part of my life. And so I've been trying to do innovation through my work, but that's not an easy thing to do as an, as a female INTJ, as a female in, innovator, a black female innovator. I've been trying to do them separately. I've been trying to work and then do innovation on the side. And I'm really, really at a place where I'm like, okay, we're really done with that. And to Tackle that innovation and work and social all at the same time, all at the same time is really me accepting the, the opportunities and the limits of being an INTJ woman, an INTJ black woman. And I'm very, very thankful for that. I'm very thankful for that consideration, even though I don't have a nice, tidy answer right now. 
Okay. You guys, if this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about thriving as relating to your personality type, particularly being an INTJ woman and even more specific, being an INTJ black woman, um, if this conversation connects to a conversation you've had in the world, please take this link and share it with those participants. Also, and there's another part of this conversation that I've stumbled into that I didn't plan on it, but just talking about anti-blackness, right? And how do stereotypes, how do stereotypes um, come to be? And so if any of that connects to a conversation you've had in the world, take this link and share it out. Always do a meaningful share and say, yo, fast forward to the 45th minute in that reflection. You don't need to listen to all of it. Just start listening between minute 45 or 50. I'm just randomly picking some numbers. Um, but you guys get what I'm saying. But when you share it out, you know, if you, if you're truly going to connect this reflection to a conversation you've had in the world, do it meaningfully and, and, and share the minute markers so that people can get right at to what's most relevant here. Cause you know, I like to meander and I, I don't want new people having to listen to all of my meandering, if you will. Um, and then, um, if my moving about, if my meandering, um, has caused some randomness in you, I would love to hear it. You can find me on my website as some people have started to do more people rather. I'm excited at your nidom.wordpress.com on Twitter, your nidom one or Facebook and YouTube, simply your nidom. I had an old uh, Facebook page. I didn't delete it. I just, I'm parking that. It was called, um, NIDOM leadership. I'd like to, I'm not going to delete it. I'm going to come back and do something with it. But right now I set up a new page. You're NIDOM. We'll see if I have time to play with that this summer. I'm not going to make any promises. You guys, let me give you an assignment. Hold on. What does thriving mean to you? And there's a distinction between surviving and thriving. Surviving is, is that survival piece that I've been kind of blinded by in the last year. I've been blinded by it maybe the last two years. Distracted by it. Remember I was talking about my rolls of toilet paper? Gosh, that's important to me. You had to go back and listen to a few episodes ago if you don't know what I'm talking about. Just trust me. Being able to buy a big bundle of toilet paper, which means I have an excess of resources to take, make sure I'm surviving. This is a good question I'm going to ask myself. When does surviving interfere with thriving? That's a good question. When does it interfere with thriving? And what, because we all have to survive, right? What, okay, here, here's the question. When does surviving become excessive? When does surviving become excessive and interferes with thriving? And I think the only way to answer that question is to consider or to understand what does thriving mean for you? What does that even mean to thrive? 
So what I'm going to do, and I'm going to invite you to do, because I have a Venn diagram that keeps flashing in my head right now as I'm talking to you guys. I keep having this picture of a Venn diagram. And in one circle, a Venn diagram is two circles and how they overlap. And it's in that overlap that I want, in that, that area that overlaps is where I want to spend some time meditating on after I'm done with this reflection. So one circle is surviving. Draw a circle, a surviving circle, and put all of the things in that circle that is necessary for surviving. And then do a thriving circle. All the things inside of the circle that would be necessary for you to feel like you're thriving. And that part that overlaps, that part that is in both circles, spend time challenging yourself. What do you want to do with the part of your life that connects to thriving and surviving? And I think that I was going to initially take this assignment and push it into considering thriving. But because I know where I have been blinded by surviving, I need to be honest with myself. There's something about surviving that has captured my attention. And maybe I won't be here for much longer, but I am, I have been here. And I don't know if I'm going to realistically jump for surviving and thriving. So what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, and for me, I'm going to do this assignment. I don't always do these assignments. Or usually I've done the assignment before I hit the record button unconsciously, unknowingly. But I'm going to do this assignment. I'm going to draw my two circles, a surviving circle, a thriving circle. I'm going to see what shows up on both of those circles. And then I'm going, I'm going to say, what's in that overlap that might be important for me to know? I'm curious about that. I, intuitively, I'm thinking something is located in the overlap, in the overlap. I should name this episode The Overlap. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, do that. Do that. I'm going to do it too. So the, the, the assignments, I think the assignment has three parts. Draw two circles and map out surviving and thriving. Identify what hap- what's located in the overlap between those two circles. Identify it. And then the third thing is, what are the implications on it? Like make some meaning out of that. What does that mean for you? What does the overlap mean for you? Are there lessons in the overlap? Are there celebrations in the overlap? Because maybe you might be already moving into thriving when you look at the overlap. What's in the overlap? All right, you guys, it has been a pleasure hanging out with you. Until I come back, be well. Bye.